Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome to this episode of Christians in the Public Square with Scott Self, Cole Bennett, and we are very happy today to welcome a guest to our show, Dr. Vic McCracken, who is an associate professor of ethics and theology here at Abilene Christian University and a great friend of mine. Since Scott and I began talking about this podcast a few years ago, I have wanted this episode to happen where we could get Vic to come on and talk about a very interesting and well-written uh, book, well-edited book that um, came out. A, it's now been about five years as we were talking, but this this book is called Christian Faith and Social Justice, Five Views from Bloomsbury Press. I, I don't ordinarily um, fawn over books on this podcast, but I have read and enjoyed this book. I have assigned it to graduate students mm-hmm. uh, in courses that I teach on rhetoric and belief and citizenship. I think it is... Um, it serves very important purposes for those for those discussions. You so, assigned it to me, and I was happy to. I was happy that you did. That's right. So and welcome, Vic. We, Thank you, Scott. And I've already found places to disagree. It's been fantastic. Before we start disagreeing, yes. So let's uh, <laughs> rehearse our <laughs> and agreeing as some, yeah, agreeing and disagreeing. Um, yeah, if you're if if our texts last night are any indication, there'd be way less of that. <laughs> Am I supposed to be the referee? Yeah, I think so. Maybe. I, I think, Vic. So we want to rehearse our three principles. The first one is, uh, Vic, oh, we believe that uh, sacred cows make great barbecue. We believe you should let your flag fly proudly, and no matter what that is. That's right. And uh, we are bros before politicos. That's right. Brotherhood first. Everything else we'll just figure out. And maybe we won't. And maybe we won't, and that'll be okay. Yeah. I think a really good place to start would be just for, for Vic – Talk about this book a little bit, and maybe some of your background, how you arrived at the idea for this book, and just in descriptive terms, what's this book about? Yeah, well, uh, the title of the book is Christian Faith and Social Justice, Five Views. I uh, began conceiving this book a number of years ago because um, we were in a time where, at least in terms of public discussions uh, in politics, there were a lot of arguments that revolved around some theoretical ideas that uh, I've done a lot of study on, uh, but um, arguments that were happening publicly that weren't actually framed around those ideas. Um, And the big idea that's really at the heart of this book is a concept about which there is real disagreement. The concept is social justice. And so even the phrase social justice, it might still be true, but it was certainly the case when I, I first began conceiving this book it was kind of a poisonous term, Hmm. right? There were some settings where the word social justice conveyed a certain political perspective Hmm. that some Christians found disagreeable. And I felt that that was unfortunate because as a concept, my belief is that social justice is something that all of us should care about. And so what I wanted to do was in a way to try to sap the poison out of the term, reclaim it so that it could become a real topic for substantive conversation. Because the fact is that among Christians, there is, I would argue, a commitment to the importance of social justice, but a lot of our differences revolve around what that commitment actually looks like in the world that we live in. So that's what the book is about. It's about trying to identify what social justice is as a concept And then it is also trying to present some different views, different ways that Christians understand what social justice looks like on the ground. So from a semantics point of view, I really appreciated the way that you uh, set social justice against kind of the backdrop of individual justice. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you operationalize that definition? Yeah, yeah. So justice itself as a concept simply is referring to how you treat people rightly. Right. So whenever I think about my relationship with both of you, Scott and Cole, we might think about justice as a concept that is focusing on me individually and how I treat you rightly. What kinds of things can I do that demonstrate a just regard for you as a person? What kinds of things should I avoid doing? So for me to point a gun at Cole and to threaten to take his money from him, 
uh, would be a way that I could treat him unjustly, mm -hmm. obviously, I would argue. Uh, when we talk about social justice, what we're talking about is how communities of people are organized in ways that treat people justly. Now, there are some people that will say that individual justice and social justice kind of are the same thing. They go hand in hand. But I would argue that there are certain things in community, there are certain kinds of questions that are raised when we think about how communities organize themselves and treat people rightly. Oh, Scott's going to be all over that. That raise different right? questions. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's okay. So, for example, um, like one of the theories that I explore in this book, I have, uh, and by the way, I don't, I did not write the entirety of the book. I wrote the introduction to frame it, but the way the book is organized, I have five different Christian writers who are each uh, defending a particular perspective on social justice. And then they're each writing responses to one another where they show areas where they agree with one another as well as differences that exist among their views. And then they write a chapter reflecting on the experience of having been in the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's awesome. right. That's how, how the book is, is structured. So if I can give you an example, um, uh, libertarianism is a good example of a theory that gives what I would argue is a coherent account of social justice. So libertarianism is a theory that uh, elevates the critical importance of individual liberty, the right of self-ownership. So uh, for me to point a gun at coal would be a morally wrong thing for me to do. That's something that libertarians are gonna say, I'm threatening him, I'm using external coercion to make him do something that he otherwise might not want to do, like give me money. Uh, so when you think about social justice, what some libertarians will say is, well, whenever the state forces me to do things that I might otherwise not consent to, like threatens me with imprisonment if I don't pay taxes to fund things like universal health care. This is another example of coercion. It's another example of injustice. So this is where one example where the individual analogy of what justice looks like, don't point a gun at coal, some Christians will take that to say we should feel the same way about using the power of the state to coerce people to do other things. Now, the difference here is that there are some people that are going to be on board with Cole or with other libertarians about not pointing guns at people, but the idea of using the power of the state to tax some citizens to fund something like a universal system of health care, they're going to be okay with that. They're going to say there's nothing unjust about that. The libertarian question is, well, why not? And the view of other uh, perspectives that are represented in the Christian tradition tries to make sense of why doing something like taxing some citizens to benefit others can be a justifiable thing. Mm -hmm. Indeed, justice might even require it, mm -hmm. according to some. Mm -hmm. So in a table of contents flavor, tell us the five different perspectives. Yeah, so uh, I've already mentioned libertarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a chapter that focuses on political liberalism. So political liberalism is a theory of justice that uh, arises I, more, most recently from the work of uh, a philosopher named John Rawls. And basically, to tell the Rawlsian story what justice requires, uh, justice requires, first of all, a commitment to liberty. So from that vantage point, liberals and libertarians are very similar. Unique to political liberalism, political liberals argue that it's important to protect the equal worth of liberty. And that means that we have to ensure that there is equality, enough equality, in a system where inequality exists to ensure equality of opportunity, to ensure that people have the things that allow them to exercise liberty fully. So uh, political liberalism, that theory of justice is going to be more okay with redistributive social policies or a state-funded healthcare system, the kinds of things that are going to ensure that people uh, have opportunities to do the things that they need to exercise liberty fully. I have a chapter on liberation theology. Liberation theology is a Christian perspective that generally is skeptical of the way that things are. It's a more revolutionary posture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it argues that in uh, the world that we live in at the present, there is rampant injustice and that the Christian response in the uh, 
um, argument of my uh, uh, contributing author, Miguel de la Torre, is to look at the injustice, to say no, and in the present moment, to screw with the system. That's right. And that uh, as soon as the next form of power is in, that also needs to be messed with. Right? I would argue probably so. I Perpetual. think that, that it's interesting. And, you know, liberation theology has a, a long pedigree stretching back into the 20th century in uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. And so uh, M- uh, Miguel, he, and I, I consider Miguel a good friend. I, he, I think he's a great writer and he's, he's written, man, so many books that uh, I think more Christians should read. Uh, but he represents, I think, kind of the, the contemporary uh, voice of liberation theology here in the United States. And uh, I'm very proud that he agreed to contribute to this uh, because I think his perspective is a needed one, uh, although it's one that I have some questions about sure. um, myself. Um, the fourth view, I have uh, a Christian feminist theory of justice. Uh, one of the things that I think um, some would rightly argue as a point of criticism of some of the views uh, represented in the volume is that they don't adequately account for one of the things that is a primary location for injustice in our world, gender justice. And so uh, the disadvantages that exist in society on the basis of gender. And so I really wanted a chapter that could bring those issues kind of front and center because it's a needed focus. And it's something that I would argue, especially in liberation or libertarianism and in uh, liberalism, it's something that uh, we can easily lose sight of in that the focus there has been so much on distributive justice. And then the last chapter is on virtue ethics. And so in virtue ethics, uh, the idea here is that uh, justice requires a commitment to shared goods and to ensuring that there's a space wherein people can live good lives. And so creating a society that ensures people have those opportunities and in in some of the more robust versions of virtue uh, ethics, societies that don't necessarily create space for people to make just any choice that they wanna make over their lives. Maybe there should be boundaries in a just society that are rooted in some sort of moral vision about what is good for people. And, so, I, and I think the other uh, really clever layer to this was she was very good at bringing out the, the idea that um, in the context of virtue, we're really talking about practices rather than stances, right? Yes, I think that about- that's right. And I would say, you know, these, these distinctions among these views can be overdrawn. There are mm-hmm. clear differences. But I would argue that there are things in uh, virtue ethics and in Elizabeth's chapter, Elizabeth is actually an ACU graduate, and uh, I thought she wrote a really strong chapter on virtue ethics mm-hmm. and, and Christian accounts of justice. And I think she would agree that there is a sense in which some of the commitments that might arise from these other theories right. are commitments that can overlap with uh, virtue. With virtue. Mm-hmm. Vic, to what degree do you think? the social justice concerns of non-Christians comport with or stand against social justice concerns of these Christians in your book? I mean, is there something uniquely Christian about these five I think it would certainly be a mistake to conceive of justice in a Christian vein as something that has no purchase outside of the church. Right? The idea that uh, there are things that Christians believe about justice that can in some way be understood by non-Christians. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, uh, what I'll say is that for Christians, there is a unique story that we tell about the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Right? We understand the world to be a world that has been determined by God's work in Christ. And so, in my view as a Christian, my understanding of justice needs to in some way correspond to the story that I tell about that. But I think it is possible for us to tell that story in a way that's true. And for those who do not embrace that story as the truth that they believe to be the case, for us to still find points of contact where the things that motivate us to do what justice requires 
are things that non-Christians can find other reasons for embracing. So maybe different motivations, but arriving at the same. Yeah, yeah, a good example, if you think about political liberalism. So for many Christians, if you ask them, why, um, why should you organize your life in a way that shows regard for the least well-off of society? They're gonna say, well, because I worship a Lord who did that mm-hmm. and showed us that that's God's character, right? God is a God who shows special regard for the least well-off. And because that's the God that I worship, that's the way of life that I want to pursue. Uh, so the question, does justice require that we care for the least well-off? Uh, there are secular ways of making sense of that. John Rawls, his theory of liberal or uh, political liberalism, uh, his theory of justice, is one that tries to make rational sense That's right. of That's what right. justice looks like that doesn't appeal to a particular religious vision, like the Christian vision of a God that shows a preferential option for the poor. Um, and the way Rawls does that, it's kind of a Kantian move that he makes in his um, his original book, Theory of Justice, which came out in 1971. And he presents a thought experiment. So I'm going to give you an example of how maybe a non-Christian might begin thinking about that commitment. Rawls says, okay, I want to, I want to do a thought experiment. And he does this in a book. And I'm going to try to boil this down the way I do in my ethics classes. Okay. <laughs> so I, I tell my students, I say... I want us to do a thought experiment in our room. What we're going to do is we're going to imagine for a moment that we are gathered together in this room and we're going to try to create a society that we're all going to live in whenever we leave this room. So in this room, this is kind of imaginary space. This is the room where we have to rationally kind of figure out what are the rules that are going to govern our life in the society that we're going to create for ourselves. So it's kind of a social contract view. We're going to try to create a contract that's going to establish the rules that are going to govern our society. And one of the things we're going to have to figure out is what we do with a basic problem in our lives. And the problem is scarcity. It's moderate scarcity. So it's the kind of scarcity Mm -hmm. that pertains to the world that we actually live in, the real world. Uh, For example, healthcare is a good example. We we have limited healthcare resources. There aren't enough doctors. There aren't enough kidneys for everybody who needs a kidney. So we know that the problem of moderate scarcity is a problem that's going to uh, afflict us in this society that we live in. So we've got to figure out rules that are going to govern our life given that fact. Mm -hmm. So here are the rules that are going to govern our discussion. This is what I tell my students. So here's the first rule. Uh, We know that out in that world, whenever we go into that society, that whatever rules we agree to in this space, we're going to have to accept. So we got to kind of pick carefully. We can't agree to rules in this space, and then when we go in the society and we discover something about ourselves, say, wait a minute, I'm not Mm going to accept those rules anymore. There got to be rules that we're all willing to live with uh, given our conversation. Here's the second thing. Uh, we do not know anything about the kind of person that we're going to be in that society that we enter into. So in this imaginary space, we have to conduct our conversation behind what Rawls calls a veil of ignorance. Mm -hmm. So I have to think while I'm having the conversation about all of the different possibilities that might happen Whenever, whenever I see who I really am. So imagine this. I have to imagine the possibility that in that space, I am a white male, five foot eleven, weigh about 135 pounds. That's who I am right now. So that, that could be who I am in that world. I also have to consider the possibility that I might be a female in that society. I have to consider the possibility I might be a person of color. I have to consider the possibility that I might be born with incredible intellectual abilities. Mm -hmm. I might be born mentally handicapped. I might be born with the ability to play basketball just like Kobe Bryant, or I could be born with a physical handicap that will require a lifetime of care. Or I could be born to a family with immense wealth. I could, or I could be born, of course, 
yeah, I, that could happen, or I could be born into yes, a family or, that is extremely poor. That's right. All of those are possibilities that I have to account for. And another reality is I also recognize that I might be born into a minority religious community, mm -hmm. or I might be born into kind of a cultural community that is the majority. Mm -hmm. So I have to account for all of those possibilities in the conversation. And so this is the question I pose to the students. Given those parameters, given that we have to agree to these rules and we're gonna have all have to live by them in that real world that we enter into, given what I don't know about myself, what would I agree to? What are the rules that I would be willing to live by? There's one other thing that I would know about myself. While I, there's a lot I don't know, there is something I do know. I do know that there are certain goods that I'm gonna want. I know that I'm going to want, I know I'm going to want resources so that I can live a good life, for example. That's reasonable, right? As it, like if, uh, if I want to live, um, if, I, if I want to live a Christian life, for example, if I know that I might be born into a Christian community, I'm going to want to assure that I am not born so desperate that the things that I have to do to survive are things that are going to keep me from, from pursuing the kind of Christian life that I want to live. All of us are going to want access to certain things, what Rawls calls primary goods. So this would be things like material wealth, housing, basic resources that people need to, to live a life that is a good life. Now, we're not all going to agree what a good life is in this space because there's going to be pluralism that's going to shape our world. We're, we can't assume that all of us are going to believe the same thing religiously. So given that, the question is, what would we agree to? So again, all of this is setting up how somebody who is not a Christian might reach the conclusion right, right. about what justice looks like. So Rawls takes about 200 pages in his book, The Theory of Justice, <laughs> to kind of work through the experiment, uh, lays out some different possibilities, and he reaches a conclusion, uh, and this is the conclusion he reaches. This is what he thinks rational agents in the original position would agree to. Here's the first thing. He basically says we would agree to two rules. Here's the first rule. You guys tell me if this makes plausible sense to you. Above all else, we would agree to protect our liberty. I want to make certain that if I'm born into a minority religious community, that I am not going to be disadvantaged by that fact. I want to make certain that I'm going to have freedom of expression, freedom of worship. I want to make certain that I'm free to live the vision of the good life that my deeply held convictions about religion tell me I should live. And Rawls says everybody's going to want that. Even if you're not, even if you discover you're not a religious person, even if right. you're an atheist, you're going to want to make certain that other religious people aren't imposing their right. views right. on you, right. right? So that's the first thing. We would protect our liberty. Here's the second thing he says. He says we would recognize that inequality is acceptable, but only under certain circumstances. We're only going to be okay with inequalities that are organized so they provide the greatest benefit to the least well-off members of society. And this is what Rawls is thinking. He's saying rational agents are gonna recognize a couple things. First of all, they're gonna recognize that there are circumstances where inequalities can be good. The example I give uh, to my class, I've written a fair bit about, about healthcare. And what I tell my students is, okay, well, let's imagine a society where everybody has an absolutely equal share. What incentives does that create to people who could be really, really good doctors to do the hard work that they need to do to become the excellent doctors we want them to be, right? If you're gonna get the same share as somebody that can live a much more relaxing life that doesn't require a lot of sacrifice, like what happens when you study to become a doctor, the incentives created there could be such that our society is worse off, right? We could end up with a society where people who might otherwise be good doctors don't have the incentive to do that kind of work. So Rawls says rational people would recognize that incentives are important and that one way of incentivizing people doing certain kinds of labor is by providing more benefit to them. We also could look at inequality the other way. 
I also have to consider I could be that person born to be the doctor, right? But I also might be that person that is born poor, needing a lifetime of healthcare. Now, I, I so for example, this actually is being played out right now when we're talking about teacher salaries in public schools, right? Yeah. If if we are if we're going to try and just create some, um, if we're just going to work by some. Uh, common de- common denominator of what pay ought to be, and it's rather low. Then how are we going to keep our best teachers in the system? It's actually playing out in real time. Um, and and one of the things you have to come to grip to to grips with is an acceptance of inequality. <laughs> in order to have a conversation about it, you have to come to grips yeah. with an exception. You know, it's of one of the surprising things about Rawls' theory. Uh, the surprising thing is, and I try to reinforce this because it's it's off. It's a common misconception of critics of liberalism, that liberalism is all about equalizing everything. Right. And I don't actually think that's accurate. I think liberalism recognizes that some inequalities are okay. Now, what I will go on to say is that many who are subscribed to liberalism would look at the inequalities that exist in our current world and say that they're not good examples of right. inequalities organized to benefit the least well-off. And that's Rawls' point. Rawls says that we're going to be okay with inequalities only if they're organized to provide the greatest benefit to the least well-off members. So well, what that looks like is it's okay to have doctors paid more, but justice requires that there be a system that ensures that the least well-off, those vulnerable people, those people that I have to consider I might be in the original position, are going to have access to the health care that those really good doctors provide. That's right. Provide. And that there would be equalities of opportunity, not necessarily equalities of... Um, uh, Results. Yeah, yeah. ontologically. Well, yeah. the idea of giving everybody equal equality, even for health care, it's a utopia, right? As long as you're dealing with the problem of moderate scarcity, you have to deal with the problem of how do you distribute something like right, kidneys right, whenever right. there are more people who need kidneys that's than right. there are to, that will get them. Mm-hmm. So that's my long take on how a secular uh, philosophical approach could lead to a conclusion that justice requires society be organized to benefit the least well-off members, inequalities be organized in that way. Because what Rawls says is that if you set aside your personal interests right now, if you try to reason from a universal perspective, what you will recognize rationally is that people who are not self-interested, these are the rules they would agree to. Hmm. Now, not everybody agrees with Rawls, but that's an example, uh, and it's a very powerful, and it's been a very influential way that secular philosophy has tried to bring normative conclusions about justice into conversation. So back to the Christian angle, my argument is, okay, well, if as a Christian, it is my worship of a God that shows a preferential option for the least well-off that compels me to say, we need a society that cares for the least well-off. And liberals who are not Christians are saying, Rawlsian liberalism is really persuasive to me and it is giving me reason why I should care about organizing society to benefit the least well-off. If we have overlap and we reach similar conclusions for different reasons, I'm okay from, with that. Right. Like That's how I think it's possible for Christians to find common ground with non, non-Christians. Right, 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 right. That makes perfect sense. There might sense. be other places, right. however, where we end up disagreeing. Uh-huh. So, um, Cole, talk to me a little bit about uh, I mean, you asked me to read the book, and I'm glad you did. But what what moved you when you uh, when you're reading this, and you're reading the 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 five different approaches? I'm I'm still drinking in Vic's answer. I, before I get to what moved me, okay. I want to ask a follow up question. Sure, um, Vic, because I'm thinking about all each of your five authors. Yes, and I'm wondering if the way that you just said nicely, a, a person who is who is a non-Christian, plain plainly a non-Christian, would be very interested in the Rawlsian uh, notion of justice. Would do you think a non-Christian could be interested in each of the five? I do. Okay. I, yeah, I think so. And I would say, like, if you look at libertarianism, for example, of course, the trajectory of libertarianism uh-huh. in the twentieth century has been predominantly secular. 
Right. And and that right, that's right. And I'm thinking, you know, my background in English studies and rhetoric studies, we studied Paulo Freire. Right. Um, sure. Um, sure. Right, that right, was right. like one oh one and talking about how his very view yeah. of of well, li- becoming yeah, educated. Yeah, absolutely. Liberation to- theology, you have uh, some, the colloquial description some give is it's Marxist Christianity. <laughs> and that's partly because uh, there were some liberation theologians in the 20th century that employed Marxist tools of analysis. I think, I to me, it's a, it's a caricature to call it mm-hmm. Marxist Christianity. But you could see the revolutionary impulse of Marxism. Uh, there is some overlap with that impulse in uh, some versions of liberation theology. Okay. With f- Christian feminism, uh, I think there's th- certainly uh, there are uh, feminist ethicists and philosophers that are arguing for uh, accounts of gender justice that are not distinctively Christian, that will find sympathy with uh, the, the essay in uh, this book. And then as far as virtue goes, I mean, uh, you know, the, the philosopher that brought virtue kind of back to the fore in contemporary discussion is Alastair McIntyre. And um, I don't know that I would label him a, a Christian ethicist, so to speak, although he has been widely influential in the field of Christian ethics. So, yeah, I do think that these views, uh, there are uh, secular approaches to each of these uh, where you might find overlap. Okay. And Scott, I'm just going to guess, for before I tell you where I was moved the most by this book, I'm going to guess that you're moved in a couple of places. Like, I am moved, I am. I identify very, very strongly with Jason Jewell's Libertarian chapter, mm-hmm. but I don't think that you were only captured, that your, uh, that your system of justice is captured in only one chapter. Am I right about that? Uh, no, it's not. Okay. No, S- but, but partly because... Um, I mean, you were describing yourself as an ethicist and not a systematic theologian. I'm a little bit suspicious of systems, period, you know, from a much more existentialist approach to the idea of, I'm much more interested in the dialogic than I am at the system. So, yeah, no, I'm not represented any one place. I think the feels happen for me in the virtue chapter the most. Um, But I, uh, I I was struck... Um, and I want to say this as generously as possible, but I think that there were some chapters that did a finer job of making a philosophical argument, and others seemed to me more interested in ratifying a system. Mm. And those are places where I think my uh, my own suspicions were were tickled a little bit. And and I think the libertarian one was an example. I I, I think that it was um, defensive of a system, and I'm not interested in a defense of a system. It doesn't make sense to me to have a defense of a system. Even a system that says, our system is, I'll, is leave me alone so I can do what I want to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I want to talk to, I got, I got all, all kinds of notes to talk with you about that <laughs> chapter because I, there, there are several, it comes up with several questions. There's no such thing as leaving alone, right? There, there are all kinds of suppositions and warrants that underpin this that are accepted, I think, somewhat blindly for the sake of having a system where you can say, I believe in liberty. Um, and, and, and I believe in uh, that liberty can be defined as no violence. R- you know, my reaction is, really? Because uh, I'm going to make the argument there's violence everywhere uh, in the in the libertarian system. But, yeah. Like You're, where? In the market. He's going to say that there's... No, no, no. Mo- not just the market. Oh, but okay. No, no. But in the ownership of property. Okay. How many acres do you own? I think... Is it like a half acre? I have about a half acre, I think. Okay. Uh-huh. And how come you own that half acre? Because the city sold it to me. Or I, a city sold it to someone originally. Who... who I don't... Who did? How did the city lay claim to it? Through coercion, yeah. At some, <laughs> the answer is coercion, well, isn't it? That's what you're. Yeah, <laughs> you cut me off. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Is it, it always comes that there's there is an act of violence that's that lies at the base of every transaction, and even if that act of violence happens centuries ago, it's really convenient to pretend like it's not happening now. So let's just go ahead and and exercise liberty where we are now. Well, here's the thing, though. I think. 
again, I, I don't consider myself a libertarian. My, my criticisms of libertarian are a little different from yours. I don't think that you can pin that on libertarianism, right? It's not libertarianism that is a system that justified the initial No, 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 coercion, no, you're right. right. You're right about that. Now, yeah. what I would say is that I actually think in defense of libertarianism that I do think it is a theory that offers a coherent way of thinking about legacies of injustice, which is, I think, what you're getting at. Like the idea that there is an injustice in the past that has ripple effects into the present that demands some sort of remedy, I think you can make a strong case on libertarian grounds that when there is a clear historical injustice, that you cannot say that the distributions in the present are suddenly okay. Uh, and I, I, I will say that there have been, there are libertarian philosophers like Murray Rothbard that I think were pretty consistent on this point that um, reparations can be justified on libertarian grounds because libertarianism is okay with unequal distributions as long as they are not rooted in something that was in initially coercion, unjust. Right, That's right. Yeah. And I think if you can make the historical case that there are inequalities or distributions born from injustice on libertarian grounds, you could say, then remedy is necessary. Now, yeah. what that looks like in policy is difficult. Well, it also depends on your definition of rooted, mm -hmm. and it depends on your definition of distributed. So I actually, and you don't either, know whether my half acre was taken from someone originally. We actually don't know that. I live in the state of Texas, and as f I have no historical proof that someone owned my half acre, and the state of Texas, when it was established, said, you don't own it anymore, it's mine, to sell to one day to Cole Bennett, or else I'll kill you. We don't know that. Yeah, we do. It's, that's <laughs> number one. Number two... <laughs> There were, <laughs> number, I, I understand your argument of your half acre, but no, number, the, we do know that the history is, is clear. I'm not sure history is clear. The, the history is clear that, that the West was settled at the, at the edge of us, at the tip of a spear. What about, I don't, I'm not talking about your half acre. I'm talking about how the West was settled was at the tip of a spear. Using the argument for libertarianism that exists within the chapter that is coercion. It was coercive. And I'm not saying that, I'm not even saying that there needs to be reparations. I'm just saying it's really sweet and easy uh, to, to pretend like, okay, well, we're just going to deal with the now because what, what exists in the past, um, uh, I, I, I've, got my, I've got my half acre. Sorry, that's the way it is. Now let's talk about my liberty and make sure nobody mm -hmm. gets on me. I understand that argument, and I have two responses. Okay, hit me. Okay. First of all, it may seem sweet and easy to say that, to say what happened in the past long is It's not any more sweet and easy to say, let's make sure we take care of people I say are the least well-off or that we say are the least well-off. Sure. And it's not yeah, – nor fair. to say that's that fair. I'm calling this system a system, therefore it's powerful, therefore I need to dismantle it. Okay. That's also sweet and easy. So yeah. I'm not sure yeah, that, this that. that this book is – or people's philosophies don't all have some sweet and easy to them. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, and that's number one. And number two, Daniel Hannon, the British MP who is a conservative scholar and historian, makes the point uh, that I find provocative. That is, you can't return to a time in history – when people lived under rules A, from where we sit now under rules M, not even B, but rules M, and say that back then uh, we need to judge it by our rules today. If people, uh, and I, I don't think that it's worthless to look at that, right. but if people uh, were establishing lands back in the days um, in certain ways that we now find distasteful, I'm not sure that that nullifies my half acre purchase from the state of Texas. I hear that. Uh, no, I do uh, hear that. Because times were different, rules were different, humanity was different, and we may decide it was terrible today. And it's, and it's also quite possible that we can over, over amplify the effect of the past violence. 
Wouldn't that be also fair, do you think? Yes, and, and I want to just go I mean, back. I don't think I do, but I, th- I think it's possible to. And let me just go back to my very first point, which is not every bit of the West was settled by the tip of a spear. Sometimes people sold people things. For, for a bag item. of beads. That's right, for a bag of beads. That doesn't mean it was coerced. It, it, we may look back on it and say that was a terrible decision. That doesn't mean it was coerced. And people listening to this may think that's a ludicrous argument, but I I mean it on its face. People bought and sold things in times when we were not present. So not every bit of it was land gained by blood. Here, here's what I would say. Like, and let me let me insert myself because you're you're making a market argument here, right? You're saying yeah. that look, if you've got somebody that bought vast tracts of land by selling a bag of beets or like trading a what bag of beets for lots of land, that because it wasn't at the point of a spear, that we can it, it's acceptable. I think one of the things I wonder about is whether or not libertarians. Um, understate the question of the power dynamics that are work in market transactions. Uh, the, the example I give here, and, th- and again, I don't know that violence is the right word to describe what I'm talking about. I think it's probably not. But this is where, again, the idea of inequality and the, the importance of addressing inequality, I think, is, is a real one when we talk about justice. Uh, if you imagine, I'll give you an extreme scenario. Can I tell you what I yes. think the scenario is? Is it the pirate? The pirate, the pirate in the ocean. Ship, yeah. The pirate and the guy in the ocean. Yeah, I right. love that story. <laughs> okay. that so have, awesome. Has your audience heard this before? No, no, no okay. tell, it, tell it. So I use this as an analogy to describe the, the idea that I'm getting at. If you imagine uh, there is a man that is uh, in the ocean. He is a shipwreck victim. He is in the throes of drowning. He is desperate. And a pirate ship comes by. Uh, it is uh, captained by the Dread Pirate Roberts, and the Dread Pirate Roberts looks and sees the man uh, in the ocean, and the man cries out to him and says, I need to be rescued. Will you rescue me? Uh, and the Dread Pirate Roberts thinks about it and says, well, you know, I'm considering rescuing you, um, but market conditions such as they are, uh, I'm going to drive a hard bargain and I'm gonna demand that you be the ship's cabin boy for the rest of your life. And so in that moment, uh, the drowning man agrees to become the ship's cabin boy for the rest of his life. That's the exchange. And so the question is, is that a just exchange? Right? Is it a just exchange? Well, given the market conditions, if all we have to say is, well, because it wasn't at the point of a gun, um, it was a just exchange, then that that sounds to me like what you're saying, Cole, but for me, that completely neglects the inequities of power. You've got a desperate person where they're faced either with imminent death or this bargain that is being driven by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And so I don't think that's an example of justice. And I think to, to the point of what that means for social justice, it kind of illustrates the Rawlsian point. If you really care about the equal worth of liberty, it is not enough to say, let the market decide. If you've got those kinds of inequalities where one party in the transaction is so desperate that they don't really have a reasonable opportunity to say otherwise than yes, then it is a less than just society. That's that's the liberal point about why addressing inequality is so important. It is for the purpose of protecting liberty. Does that make sense? It does make sense. <laughs> but, so I've no, convinced no, you. <laughs> no, no. Well, and Vic and I have talked about the drowning guy in the pirate before, and so this this answer will address that, and I will move on to address Rawls, and then I want you to weigh in, Scott, um, because well, you and I have not talked much about Rawls, but we have talked about my objection to Rawls. You just don't know it, which is, um, Vic, you're going to love this. Yeah. And by the way. The chapter on libertarianism, I know Jason Jewell, but I don't know him well. Yeah. But I know Vic, you know him very well. I think it's uh, extremely it, it it's extremely well written I agree in with that. that it oh, I it agree. represents 
my position fully as if I would have written it only better. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have written it that well. You no, know? and I should also say, just, so, just before we go forward, it's not his fault that I'm suspicious oh, of systems, absolutely. right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Jason is, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, a it's very clear. It's very well written. Um, my first response to the guy in the ocean and the pirate is that their transaction as a community member is categorically none of my business. Okay. Right? They're entering into a private transaction. Wow. Yeah. And I have zero burden as a mere community member to that guy. We're trying to have a society. We're trying to have a society. So as a Christian, my duties are different. And so I will move immediately to the Rawlsian objection, which is everything you have said, Vic, requires, and that Rawls, if if Rawls are in this room— requires someone or some committee to decide who is the least well-off and what the remedy is. And the people in your in Rawls society don't have the option to say, no, thank you, I'm not going to participate in the redistribution. If they don't redistribute, redistribute they, uh, I assume, have consequences. Well, I don't think that's a fair reading of Rawls, though. Well, I'm not quite finished. Okay, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> if you don't mind, no, uh... I, and I think everyone that you're talking, everyone Rawls talks about, and the pirate and the guy in the water, magically appear, which takes away the role of two people deciding we are categorically unable to afford to have a child now. We don't have insurance for the child, or we have insurance for each other. But if there's a birth defect or something with his child. Uh, we are unable to, we would be unable to do anything, but we're going to decide to have a child anyway. It takes away that, and, and when I hear people talk about Rawlsian injustice or um, other names for it, it starts with a child born here is unequal to a child born here, and it never takes into account the role of parents who decide to have children. And that bothers me because it assumes that that we can't control that. Well, let me let me ask you this. Based on what you're saying, I would gather you would say that um, the justice of making that decision is going to be different given the cert- like you brought up healthcare as a, that's one I always come back to. Yes. Well, I mean the cost for healthcare for individuals in the UK is going to be quite different. A couple that you're saying you're not acting responsibly because you're doing you're trying to have a child you can't raise, they're going to be able to make that decision in a society where there's universal health care like uh, the UK. And it's going to be a different calculus in a society like ours where there's not. And so I think your argument seems to kind of just put off to the side the fact that there are these variables that actually are going to be very different in different contexts. Oh, I, I agree that that decision is different in different contexts. A couple in any country has to weigh the prevailing laws of that country to say, can we afford to procreate? And I, in the Times a few months ago when I was in, the, in England in the summer, there was an article published in the Times that reported it was over 4 million, but I don't know, four point, I can't remember, over 4 million people who are currently waiting for surgery with the NHS. It did not say emergency surgery. It just said there are 4 million people on the waiting list. So if I were to have a child in the UK, though it would be, uh, there's not, I would be guaranteed access to a universal health care, I would have to realize that um, if my child needs care faster than my NHS can provide it, how, how close is the, ne- the nearest private center? Can I afford that? Sure. So the, it's, there is a different calculus depending on where you are. I don't think it's as cleanly defined as some of the Rawlsians might think. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And, um, you know, there's no utopia here, right? There there's is no, no utopia when we talk about health care. Uh, and I think that the waiting lists on elective care, that's one of the trade-offs. If you're going to have a supply or a system that says everybody gets access to care and it's going to be funded by taxpayers, then the demands for care 
are going to be greater than a system that says some people who can't pay for health care are not going to get access to it. I'm okay with the trade-off of allowing, um, of, of recognizing that elective care might require waiting lists. And I, I also say that I don't think that waiting is something unique to a more socialized system. And I think if you talk to anybody who has had experience with managed care in the United States, you will see that that is true. Well, I've had phenomenal care with, phenomenal record with managed care. Uh So I could be an outlier in that respect, but I, I. You might might talk to some of the women um, in Abilene who, uh, like my wife, who was trying to set up uh, her uh, first primary care visit whenever we moved here. And there was a waiting list to get into primary care for doctors who were in network. Yes, right. Or um, low-income persons who want to pay cash for a doctor and there aren't doctors in the, in the city who accept for That's right. And so to both of you, I would say, look how yeah, bastardized incentives have ruined what would otherwise be a market where cash-paying customers could get help and where it would incentivize more primary care physicians to drop a shingle and to have uh, different patient loads and different and resource themselves differently from filling out, uh, having staffs to fill out paperwork to have more assistance. We got three PhDs in a room, but you don't have to have a PhD to know that what we've got right now is not working. Oh, it's it's, it's no. terrible and nobody agrees that it's good. I don't think Except that, insurance companies. I Well, <laughs> I do think, again, I think there are bastardized incentives. Yeah. Is it okay to say that on here? On yeah. <laughs> But I don't, I, and I don't think that the medical profession invented those bad right. incentives. Right. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. I, my problem with libertarianism, and you know, Cole, you and I have uh, talked a lot about this, is I think that for most libertarians, it is very difficult to be entirely consistent on your commitments, unless you are an anarchist. And I will entirely credit the anarcho-libertarians. Uh, Jay, I might count Jason among them. I can never pin him down on that. Right. Uh, you can have him on your podcast and ask him directly if he is. But what I mean by that is anarcho-libertarians insist that there should be no state at all. Right. Minarchists say there should be a minimal state. And then minarchists will sometimes disagree about what level of state provision is necessary. But what I I try to press libertarian friends that I converse with is I tell them there are a lot of things that most of us take for granted that the state does. Even you take for granted. We have universal police and fire protection in Abilene. If you are unemployed, you have no job, you, uh, you have no income, and there is a fire where you are going to lose property, the fire department will come. If you are a victim of a crime, the police will come. Well, we could allow the market to provide those uh, services too. This, yeah. yeah, you could have a market. And, and indeed, there are some rural communities that uh-huh. have uh, subscription-based fire protection. But my argument is, you know, imagine a society where you have each person uh, subscribing to their own protective defense force, the way that we subscribe to like different um, automobile insurance mm-hmm. companies. You know, you're going to have State Farm and Prudential each providing defense for you, and uh, and that sounds really far fetched, but there are libertarian philosophers that have kind of gone down that road of painting that experiment. And the idea is that in our society right now, there are certain things that we have universalized that most all of us agree to are okay. Universal police and fire protection, the other big one is education, right? We have a system. I tell people, if you want to look for a primary example of redistributive social policy, look at public schools. Because public education is basically a scheme for forcing some people to pay for the education of other people's children. Now, as somebody who's not a libertarian, I believe justice requires, well, requires it. I believe that just it is that is a just thing to do. Uh, and part of the reason for that is I am not persuaded that the libertarian argument that getting the state out of education and trusting private charities to provide education will ensure that all kids get access to education. Uh, I think that when you look at places where there not is not a well-developed system of education, 
uh, there are plenty of examples where some kids simply don't go to school. Now, that is not that that can be overstated. There are places where there are more privately run systems of education for uh, the impoverished that are actually doing some really good things. There's been some research um, out of uh, some of the uh, slums in India, for example. Uh, what's the name of that tree? The beautiful tree. Yeah, the beautiful tree yeah. that show that. So I want to be careful whenever I, I say I'm not libertarian. I don't want to discount the idea that private industry, that nonprofit work, and the, the, the consensual work of individuals can play a very uh, effective role in dealing with these things. I do not think that it by itself is sufficient. And I think to say that it is, I think... Um, well, I think that there are certain things that most people are committed to that should be entirely thrown out the window. I think universal police and fire protection would be two, and I think public education would be another. And I think if you try to press that argument, uh, there are very few people who are going to be persuaded for the reasons that I'm laying out. I think there would be substantial fear that the state does provide some level of security when it says every child will have access to an education. I think it's I think it's rare that I mean I think we would rarely attribute um, the title philosopher to any effective politician, <laughs> and maybe that's maybe Ron Paul is an example of a non-effective politician. But I did I, I remembered him. Um, I believe this was I can't remember when it was, but there was uh, it was during a debate where he uh, made the argument. Listen, we could we, we could just stop funding foreign wars and go ahead and take care of everything else. We could pay, we could take care of everyone's health care. Yeah, let me tell you exactly what that was, because it was a great moment that caused a lot of people to gasp when he said, there's a big difference between military spending and defense spending. Uh -huh. One of them is authorized by the Constitution, and one of them is so overrun that it's a crime. And if we just stopped the wrong kind of spending, which he called military spending, we could have health care for everyone in America. Yeah. And everyone was stunned that Ron Paul, a staunch libertarian, was saying that. And I don't think he was saying, let's now have universal health care. He was making the point of the tremendous waste involved with military spending. But it was an interesting it, argument it was that interesting, we can go yes. ahead and take care of this because until we figure something else out or until it was just interesting yes and people who would press ron paul on stuff he would say you know he was very he made very sensible answers he said you it takes a long time to turn a ship yeah. so i wouldn't if i became president i wouldn't start pushing buttons and oh i believe you had, there are a lot of buttons you'd be pushing <laughs> <laughs> no that's what he said oh, oh okay <laughs> one one thing i really appreciate vic about yours and my friendship yep is that uh you have helped you and I, our dialogue together has helped me ferret out some of the corners of what I believe as a libertarian to see if they pass certain tests of consistency. And I, I feel and it's, it's caused me to do more research. It's caused me to think, well, uh, what is this thought experiment where we're brought home in some way that might actually might not be just a thought experiment? And um the book we mentioned was A Beautiful Tree, which essentially argues that there are in lots of corners of the world some very poor people uh, who have found ways to educate their children privately alongside public schools that would otherwise be free to their children. And I think the, the moral I take away from that is that a child's education has a lot to do with the parent and I think that's true in our public school system today that I think, Vic, you're, I know you've done a lot of research in public schools in your earlier work. I think uh, that you seem to be pretty happy with public schools. Oh, that's probably an overstatement. Okay. <laughs> well, I, but my point that parents make the biggest difference I see happening in public schools today, the teachers I know say my classroom is clearly divided between students who are glad to be there and want to learn and the other half, I just want to stop bothering the, the half that wants to learn. Yeah, it's true. So I it's think, true. I think yeah. public, yeah. we do not have, I think, public schooling for free. We have a door of a public school opened for people for free. Or, or for redistributed costs. I'm not sure schooling is happening in much of, much of the time. And that's very cynical, I realize, but that's what I hear from teachers I know in the public school system. 
I, I certainly am not one who's going to say that public education as it currently stands in our society is ideal. And I think the question is, given deficiencies, uh, what do you do about that, right? Is it like, is the argument that, okay, will best be done with public schools altogether? And I'm, I'm wary of that conclusion because I really do think, I mean, I grew up in a, in a rural community and, and I know that for many of us, uh, the public school was, you know, that, that was what provided the opportunity for us. It would have been much more difficult for us to go to something other than a public school. Now, I, I mean, I guess one reply here would be that without public education, uh, there could be, there would be space for nonprofits and for private organizations to kind of fill in that space. Um, I don't know that American history bears that out. My dissertation was on homeschooling and uh, one of the, um, you know, homeschooling was a, a, a more common, well, it's increasingly common these days, but in uh, early American Republic, there were places where uh, kids would be homeschooled. And uh, really one of the things that gave rise to uh, public education in the early 19th century was the awareness that there were certain regions of the United States where some kids were simply not getting an education, either because they lacked access to resources that would allow the family to homeschool, or there was not a private charitable uh, organization or person that was able to or willing to provide affordable uh, schooling for the kids in the community. And so uh, I just think that's one of the things that gives rise to public education in the 19th century was the awareness of uh, the inequities of access that were born out of a less formalized system. Well, and I think most libertarians in 2019 would be very happy with the mid-step of having vouchers. Yeah, and, and let, yeah. Pu let and, public schools that are terrible close and go away. Yeah, and there, there are there are some liberals that would be sympathetic to that, but let's let's be open-eyed that vouchers are another form of redistribution. Yes, that's why I called it a mid-step. Yeah. <laughs> A misstep, yeah. and I, and and again, from a liberal perspective, if a voucher system is one that could provide benefit to the least well-off of society, if it's something that's going to allow a poor family to have access to a better education for their children, in principle, liberalism would not be opposed to that. I do think that there are some consequential fears about what happens. Sure, right. Sure, but maybe we could find common ground yeah, on the yeah. helping of the poorest. Man, I, I feel like we are leaving some chapters. I feel undone. like we. Well, I feel like we uh, dogpiled you. No, no, no. Because no, I because I, I, I expected <laughs> that we would have time for uh, uh, to criticize my my perspective. So I I hope that's okay. That well, were... We may have to have another episode with Vic. But how about is there anything that you wanted to say about the chapters that moved you for a few minutes? As we no, no. I mean, we can do it on. There. We're we're about out of time. Oh, okay. I, I think I, suggest, I just want to make sure that you're aware that I didn't. I don't. That, I don't that, think so. That I want to be sensitive to my friend. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> I'm aware. I I think that uh, inviting some of the other uh, contributors to this book to be in conversation with you, Jason, would be fabulous. The Libertarian. Uh, I don't know Dan Dombrowski as well. Dan is uh, a Catholic uh, philosopher. Uh, out of, uh, I think he's still in Seattle, and he wrote a book called Rawls and Religion, where he tries to make a Christian case for mm, Rawlsian gotcha. liberalism. And I think he would be good. Uh, Miguel, man, I just, I, I think a lot of Miguel, right. he is very, like, he will tell you what he thinks, and uh, he brings, I think, a needed perspective, especially to people like me who I think can be rightly criticized for. Um, basically trying to justify the way that things are yeah right it's it's yeah. and so i i think that the the impulse that and the focus on practice because um um i keep calling him miguel because i i i consider miguel a friend but professor de la Torre, uh <laughs> if we could i i'll be a little bit more formal with him um 
you know, he is so focused on the idea that in the end, Christian justice isn't about philosophizing, right? It's about right, practice. Right. It's yeah, about yeah, the things action. that we do as Christians. And so I'm reminded that like from, from Miguel, those things that I do in my office, if they're not in any way connecting to the real lives and experiences of people, especially people on the margins, then how Christian can it actually be? Mm, that's right. And so um, uh, the, the feminism chapter, uh, I think, is uh, fabulous. Uh, Laura is, I, she, she's a good friend, a great uh, scholar, and has done a lot of writing on gender injustice. And so I'm really grateful for her contribution. And then, of course, uh, Beth, uh, I call her Beth because she's a. Fr- I, I've, I feel like I formed you know, something of a closer relationship. But Beth and I, we we took classes together mm. here when she was a oh, student at awesome. ACU, and now she's doing amazing work in Cambridge and just such a such a great uh, scholar in the field of Christian ethics and has a lot of great things to say. Um, and uh, all of them are people that I think if you reach out to them, they would they would bring valuable voice to the things you guys are talking. Well, that is a great idea. Well, you did, and we're yes, very grateful. Yeah.